Good morning, everybody, and happy Friday to you. My name is Connor Collins. I'm a registered massage therapist and sports injury therapist. And welcome to the Concast, a podcast where we discuss all things health, wellness, and injuries in an attempt to better understand the human body. This is episode number 99, where I had the pleasure of speaking with my good friend, Dr. Mark Rocha. Mark is a chiropractor practicing out of Barrie, Ontario, whose practice has a special interest in treating both elite level and amateur road cyclists and mountain bikers. Throughout the conversation, we had some great discussion around periodization and programming for cyclists, recovery, as well as exercise used in rehabilitation, as well as performance. I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot, so I hope that you enjoy it as well. And we'll see you in the next one. Good morning, everybody, and happy Friday. Uh, we have another interview today. One of the great things to come out of the social media world, which was uh, back in the day, we were able to connect on social media and have become really good friends since. So we're going to be talking about a lot of things today, but focused in on rehabilitation, particularly as it relates to cyclists. So I'd like to welcome my good friend, Dr. Mark Roca, to the show. Welcome, buddy. Looking forward to today's conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me, Connor. Excited to be here. So before we get into today's topic, Mark, which I know is is sort of one of your areas of special interest, maybe just give the listeners, for those of them that don't really know you, a little bit of a background about your journey in education and how you got to where you're at now. So I've been in the game for a while now in some sort of capacity with health and fitness for since probably like the early to mid nineties. So I think we're getting pretty close to 30 years now. I went to school for a while. I started off with a fitness and health promotion diploma over at Fanshawe College and then jumped over to Brock, got a degree in neuroscience. And then from there, I went on to CMCC, the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College and got my chiropractic degree there. And then started my practice in Barrie, Ontario. Right around the same time as I started into practice, I had the opportunity to teach at Georgian College. So I taught there for a number of years, mostly anatomy, physiology, a lot of exercise science in the pre-health and fitness programs there. I guess exercise physiology being the most important one for today's conversation. And like I said, I've been in Barrie for about 10 years now, a little more than that. And based on geography and my own interest in sports, because uh, I do a lot of cycling myself, I've kind of fallen into being one of the go-to guys in the area for a lot of the cyclists. And, and because of that, I've had the opportunity to work with some of the best cyclists in the country and uh, working with them in a rehabilitative standpoint or performance-oriented standpoint. And through some of those connections, I've also got to have access to some of the brains of some of the top coaches in the country as well. So it's, uh, it's a lot of fun for me, given that I like to cycle and, and I get to work with some of the, the best that we have to offer. So that's kind of, uh, kind of where I'm coming from today. With respect to you were at Brock, you, you started at Fanshawe. 
was it always chiropractic school or was it just kind of like that's sort of how things fell and did you always because I often ask people when they got into the therapy industry what spurred that what was was there other avenues for you or you just kind of always felt maybe it was based on the fact that you were an athletic kid or something that that's where you always wanted to be no for me it was originally just my interest in health and fitness so that was my draw to the fitness and health promotion program and then from there I usually joke around that my my injury history is much more impressive than anything on my CV. So lots of sporting injuries over the year from, from biking and snowboarding and various other sports. And through the therapists I'd seen over the years, I was never really overly happy with the quality of care that I was receiving. And given I kept getting injury after injury after injury, kind of along the way, I decided, hey, maybe this is the sign of the universe telling me I should be working in this capacity. So then that kind of spurred on, okay, getting into neuroscience and then, then chiropractic from there. Cool. So with respect to, you know, you'd mentioned you were an avid cyclist because I know you played a lot of sports as a kid. When did you start to lean more towards these endurance-based sports? Because I know you don't, you don't only cycle, you do, and maybe you can discuss a little bit about the, the more kind of multi-sport endurance stuff that you do as well. But what drew you to specifically endurance sports or these longer stints of athletic feats, if you will. Yeah. The, the, the big thing with the endurance sports and the big draws, because truth be told, I, I suck at being an endurance athlete. Um, I'm not naturally not very good at it. Historically, I, I'm more of a fast twitch athlete, so I can go fast. I've got good reflexes. Like if you want to play tag, I, I can play that game really, really well. But when it comes to endurance, I'm just, I have to work really hard at it. So for me, there, there was a natural challenge there. I don't have a big VO2. I don't have a big engine. So I, I've got to work really hard at this. So with that, um, the mental aspect of it, to be able to push myself and to commit to something like that, that's sort of the appeal to me for the endurance sports. And then I've just sort of really fallen in love with it. And as you noted, so I, I do a lot of cycling and being on a bike is sort of was ground zero for me. But then that kind of snowballed into more off-road multi-sport type of events, adventure races, that sort of thing. I, I've always run most athletes. That's sort of the common thread is they, they all run in some way, shape or form. So it's a nice way to sort of just get out, be outside, get in the forest and just do lots of things, whether it's running, whether it's mountain biking, or even getting it on the water and doing some kayaking. The other thing too there with the endurance is uh, just long-term health and, and being a well-rounded, healthy individual and athlete. I mean, there's there's a pretty strong correlation with VO2 max and, and longevity and quality of life. So I know that HIIT training has become very, very sexy in the last number of years, but but I think aerobic is super important. Yeah, I can't remember what study it was, or maybe it was even you that was talking about it, but somebody was talking about VO2 max or some component of VO2 max being the best predictor for longevity. Um, And I can't remember where I heard that. And so don't kind of quote me on it really strictly, but I do think you're right. I think with the popularity of things like CrossFit and HIIT training and no, you know, I'm not knocking those. They're a great adjunct to certain programs, but I still do think that uh, whether it's long, slow cardiovascular training or more fartlek style training where you're kind of undulating between aspects of long, slow distance with some heavier efforts in between, there has to be, I mean, it's been around for so long for, for a reason that there has to be upside to that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and there was a number of years ago where, where cardiovascular exercise and aerobic exercise was, was top of the mountain. And then recently, and, and I think it's a lifestyle thing. People are living busier, more stressful lifestyles now. So, I mean, if hits all you can get in and that's all you have time for, that's still certainly better than not doing anything. But we, over the course of the years, and I think you've been in this long enough as well, that you sort of, you see these transitions where I'm just waiting for the aerobic to sort of make that come back again. Yeah, hundred percent. It'll be a few years and then there'll be some, well, and you're even starting to maybe not the aerobic aspect, but you're starting to see from a cycling perspective with things like Peloton coming around, they're basically taking both of those models and now morphing them. There's like a hit version and one of the great things that things like CrossFit and some of these other movements have uh, created is like this really tight sense of community. So Peloton's sort of doing that. Granted, the workouts are still quite a bit shorter, I think. But yeah, I think you're right. I think that at some point, the long, slow distance will come back in some sort of morphed version of what it once was. Absolutely. And that's kind of the nice thing about, you know, Peloton, I know... Some of the more cycling elitists, we'll call them, tend to sort of frown upon things like Peloton. Uh, I mean, maybe it's not your thing, but it's like you sort of alluded to with that social element. Um, When you're considering the whole biocycle social model of health, like that social piece is really, really huge for people. And, And if it's getting them exercising, then I'm all for it. Yeah, 100%. Let's start off talking about like cycling as a whole. And you know, when my career first started, I worked more in the space of cycling and endurance sport. And I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but if we could maybe just talk about the sport of cycling and maybe the, the different types of cycling, like road versus mountain bike, and then just some of the unique demands that maybe a cycling athlete has compared to say other, other sports. I think that would be a good good place to kind of give the listeners an overview of the sport in general. For sure. So, I mean, when it comes to cycling, um, one of the big things that differentiates the sport of cycling with, with most other sports is it's non-weight bearing. So, uh, I mean, you're on a bike, there's no, there's no impact. And essentially the way it works is the more time you spend on the bike, the more, the better fitness you build and then the better cyclist you become. It's sort of a very crude metric, but it's almost predictable that if you spend enough time on the bike, you're, you're going to get better. And if you want to get better, you got to put more time on the bike. So by spending all these hours in a not long weight bearing sport, um, we need to take a look at you know bone health. We're sort of looking at the whole gauntlet of health. If we're not weight bearing and we're spending this amount of hour, many hours non weight bearing, then you know bone health can become an issue especially in a sport like cycling, where the power to weight ratio is going to be a big factor. So it's advantageous. Obviously, you need to be powerful, which is, you know, power is the ability to do work fast. So the faster you can do the work, the better cyclist you are. But that power to weight ratio is pretty huge. So all things being equal, the lighter athlete has a competitive advantage. So the lighter you are, the less work that you have to do. So with that, um, weight does obviously become an issue. So when we're we're looking at a sport that's non-weight bearing to begin with, but also has this demand to be light, you know, this is where we need to look at overall health and not just the performance of the athlete. So things like nutrition, relative energy deficiency sport or REDS, which is, is, is newly been updated from the former female athlete triad. 
is another consideration and as well as lean muscle mass. So a lot of these cyclists, they're putting a lot of hours on the bike. If you're talking about like a competitive weekend warrior, maybe six, seven hours a week, all the way up to the elite levels, they're 20, 20 plus hours a week. That doesn't leave a whole lot of other time for other training, resistance training, which we can sort of talk about later. But essentially those are big factors. So if it's non-weight bearing and power to weight ratio dictates that these are things that we at least need to consider. The other thing we sort of need to look at with cyclists that make them a little bit unique is when we look at the movement patterns of the sport. So with all sport and with all movement, we need to look at what the, what the movement patterns are. And with cycling, you know, we, we have three zones of support that we need to consider if we're looking at rehabilitation or performance outcomes is the handlebars, the seat, and then the pedals. So those, those are going to kind of be the fixed points. And then in understanding those demands of the sport, we need to, okay, that's where the support is, what's producing power, AKA the hips, and then where that energy transfer is coming from. So with that, that's a little bit more unique as well, because it's different than say football or hockey or rugby, where it's all foot contact on the ground and it is weight bearing. So those are some of the more fundamental differences between say cycling and other sports. And then when looking at the, you know, the fundamental differences between say like a road cyclist and a mountain biker is, and I use the word athletic in air quotes, but the, the sport of mountain biking is a lot more dynamic than say road cycling. It's going to require a lot more upper body strength than what is necessarily needed for a road cyclist. So a road cyclist, they hop on their bike and they produce big power and it's all leg based um, versus on the mountain bike. There's a lot more technical terrain. There's rocks, there's descents, there's logs, and there, there's lots of features on the course that require a lot of upper body strength to go along with that. There is a really great physiotherapist, Tara Lazarski. She's the lead physio for our lead therapist, actually, for Cycling Canada. And she has a set of rules that are called Tara's rules. Um, and there are two of them when it comes to mountain bikers. One is they crash a lot. And then two, they walk on their hands. So from an injury perspective with the crashing, that upper body strength is pretty critical. The ability to, because it's inevitable, they are going to crash at some point. So when you're going down, we're clipped into the bike. It's typically going to be some sort of a foosh injury. So having that upper body strength and resiliency, you know, is going to be critically important in their ability to finish a race or to continue training. And the other piece I like is that they walk on their hands. And if we sort of go back to the movement patterns, essentially that's what they're doing. So when we're prescribing exercise, again, whether it's rehabbing an injury or it's more performance oriented, keeping in mind what those fundamental movement patterns are really sort of help us hone in what it is we got to do to make sure that we're achieving the outcomes that we want to achieve. And is that just because the center of the center of mass is so far forward on the handlebars because typically in a mountain biking race, there's a lot of just, it's seemingly more downhill, but there's a lot of undulations. Is that what she's alluding to there? Yeah, exactly. We break down that movement and if you factor in, okay, with, with, with the bars, you're either pushing or you're pulling or you're rowing or you're anti-rowing constantly. 
we sort of think about how the energy is transferred from bar to bar as we're sort of putting force from one pedal to the next pedal. It's very, very similar as if you were walking on your hands. And for those listeners that aren't familiar with what a foosh injury is, a foosh injury is falling on an outstretched hand or essentially what Mark's alluding to is going over the handlebars and then putting your hands out to catch yourself. So this is what he's alluding to a lot of the injuries that happen in mountain biking or trail riding, whether that's at a high level or recreational level end up being those style of injuries is the mass to power ratio that you alluded to less important in mountain biking than road biking, would you say, or not really? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think there, there's always going to be some sort of a trade-off um, when it comes to that. Now, historically, it was sort of thought that the, the lighter the athlete, the better. But again, when, when we need that upper body strength, we, it is going to come at a cost weight-wise because we need a little bit more muscle mass to handle that. So the other trend by analogy is what we refer to is with, with bikes, you know, cyclists being weight weenies in the sense that because the lighter the bike is and the less that their mass is, the less work that they have to do, that improves their, their power to weight ratio, which means that they will perform better. So it was always thought to get that bike as light as humanly possible. But the trend on the World Cup circuit recently has been what they're starting to do now is compromise a little bit of the weight for performance and durability of the bike. So where that critical point is in terms of your body mass, I I couldn't give you an absolute number. That's obviously individually dependent, but I think that it is advantageous to carry at least a little bit more lean mass if it makes you stronger and more resilient on the bike. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm sure we'll get into it uh, a little bit later maybe, but also body weight. It's not just body weight, as you alluded to, it's lean mass to fat mass, right? Because maybe we'll just get into it now, but I think one of the things that you see traditionally in a lot of endurance athletes that don't have their nutrition, the resistance training dialed in is high body fats with low body weight, right? So they might come in at say 130 pounds, but you've got a male with like 35% body fat because they're not doing enough resistance training. They're not getting adequate protein intake for the number of calories that they're burning throughout the course of their week. And the thing that I'm sure you're familiar with in the sport of cycling and endurance sports as well is just like carbohydrates, right? Just fuel carbs, fuel carbs, fuel carbs a lot of the time. And then they're forgetting the fact that, well, it's the muscles of the leg that are producing the power. And subsequent to that, you need the protein to recover appropriately. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the carbohydrates, that, that's, what, that's the fuel, right? So when we were given the, the absolute volume that these athletes are putting on on their bikes, and again, upwards of 20 plus hours a week at the higher levels, um, that's a lot of carbohydrates in order to fuel that machine, right? And, and we need to get the energy that we need. Otherwise, we start to run into things like reds. But to your point, absolutely, like the, the proteins and the fats are absolutely going to be essential to, to recovery, to bone density, to lean muscle mass, to hormonal health, um, endocrine health, that sort of thing. So again, that's going to be critically important. And, and to your point about the, you know, the distribution of that mass, I mean, adipose, you know, it, it's, it's not advantageous at all. We, we can justify having lean mass if it's producing power, if it's keeping us healthy, if it's keeping us injury free and resilient, but you know, excess adipose, there's no benefit to that whatsoever. 
and that would be excess adipose above what is required for general health for males or females. The reds thing, are you able to kind of outline that a little bit more for listeners and maybe just speak to how that's been updated against what the female triad is? Are you able to give a little bit of insight to, and maybe just explain it to the average person? Yeah. So with historically what was referred to as the the female athlete triad was sort of looked at, you know, things like disordered eating, low bone density, um, these sorts of things. And it really wasn't a very comprehensive model. And and, and it was a sexist model straight up. So it's been updated by uh, Margot Mountjoy, I believe she's out of McMaster in the last 10 years. It looks at it more all encompassing and it's a relative energy deficiency. So with that, there, there used to be a stigma where with the quote with the with the female athlete triad that you know anorexia, bulimia, purging, these sorts of things to keep the to keep the weight low. But what it is, it actually it's more accurately defined as a relative energy deficiency. So and I see this a lot with young athletes. They're training a lot. So if you have a 15-year-old, you know, you got a teenager, male or female, it's completely irrelevant. If they're training 10 to 20 hours per week and they're eating the same total calories that their age and sex matched peer that doesn't train is eating, it's just not enough. So they're, they're putting in all this training, but their body's running on the deficit and you can get that way with that for a little while in the short term, but in the long term, it's disastrous to your overall health and your body's ability to, to not only recover, but maintain homeostasis. So in short, in lay terms, it's just, it's not that people are eating in a disordered manner. They're just not getting enough to meet the demands of what they need to do. Yeah. They used to characterize it as disordered eating. And I never really thought that was an accurate description because as you said, it's not as though the athlete, and I mean, in the context of the definition, it's not as though all the athletes have eating disorders. It's essentially this conversation around, like you said, energy in versus energy out. And I I agree with you, the updated terminology to then encompass all athletes and not just female athletes, because it's happening to all athletes in general that aren't consuming enough calories for their age and the activity that they're doing. And then you're seeing negative downstream effects of that, whether that is lower bone density loss of menstruation in females, loss of muscle mass, issues with sleep, issues with concentration, school, etc. The consumption of calories or the consumption of energy, and you might not want to discuss it in terms of calorie, but at least eating enough food to match the activity is something that's important for all athletes. Exactly. By analogy, I mean, if we, if we think of a vehicle, if you run the car on empty and it runs out of gas, it's just not going to run. We, we need to sort of, the way we need to think about food, getting good quality food, you know, starting with getting adequate protein, getting adequate fats in your diet, because that's, that's the building blocks that that's how your body works off proteins and fats. And then not thinking of carbohydrates as the enemy, but just thinking of them as fuel. And, and, you know, if, if you're doing more activity and you're training more, you need more fuel, you know? So it's sort of looking at it in that context is sort of refueling the body uh, as opposed to good foods, bad foods. I think that's really great to kind of outline some of those new guidelines with respect to the female triad specifically, because I haven't really done that on the podcast yet. With respect to now shifting a little bit and talking about injuries with cyclists, 
you know, you've treated cyclists and endurance athletes for far longer than I have, and it's kind of your wheelhouse. And like you said, you've treated some of the, the elites in the country. Is there a general philosophy that you have for treating cyclists, either from a, a true treatment in the clinic standpoint, some of the psychosocial factors? Do you find that there's nuances or differences from treating cyclists versus other athletes? Uh, I'd love for you to kind of outline that if you could. Yeah, that, that rabbit hole runs pretty deep, but um, essentially in terms of philosophy, it's the same as it is with anybody outside of some of the more unique things that are specific to, to cycling, as we've noted, I can touch on a little bit more athletes are athletes and individuals are individuals, right? So philosophically it's the same paradigm. So we're, we're treating the person and, and kind of meeting them where they're at, right? So it's okay. Being honest about where we are, figuring out where it is they need to go and then finding, you know, the straightest and fastest path to sort of get them there possible. And, and that's going to be different from athlete to athlete, just like it is from, from, you know, the general population. When it comes to the more cycling specific injuries, there's sort of a mental checklist that I'll go through. First one on my list, and this is straight across the board, is making sure that they've had a proper bike fit. So like with a runner, they need to have a good shoe that fits them and works with their anatomy. Um, and then there is no perfect way to run just as an aside. But with, with the cycling injuries, again, first line of thinking is always going to be bike fit. So unless that athlete has gotten their bike fit by a qualified professional, it doesn't matter what I do after that. There's going to be a breakdown somewhere almost guaranteed. So that needs to be addressed first. So we can go blue in the face looking for quote unquote dysfunctional or faulty movement patterns. But a lot of times that's not the case. It's just the bike doesn't fit properly. So that, that's my first line of thinking is, okay, let's get that bike fit if it hasn't already been done. Second on the list, it's training. So we have to consider what their volume is, what kind of an intensity they're doing. As you know, building fitness, it takes time and it takes consistency. And anytime we get these sudden spikes in training relative to what we've been doing consistently over the past several weeks, that's going to leave the door open for something to break down. So we need to do slowly build that up. And again, if we haven't been doing anything for a couple of weeks or we've been training consistently for a number of weeks, but then we get this big massive spike, we're kind of playing with fire a little bit, right? So we do need to overload the system and then recover if we, if we want to build some kind of an adaptation. So with cycling, that's improved fitness. But if we start overloading too much or too soon, or we're not recovering well enough, then something will inevitably break down. So first line of thinking, again, is making sure the bike is fit. And then my second line of thinking or my line of questioning when I'm taking my history is what does the training look like and what have the trends been over the past several weeks and several months? If I've gone through those two points there and then everything is good, they're fit, they're periodizing properly, then that's when I'm going to start looking to motor patterns. Whether it's in a chronic injury or an acute injury, even if it's just a subtle little breakdown in terms of what's happening from a motor output perspective, over the course of the volume these athletes are putting on, something very, very small can certainly be compounded over time. If we sort of look at an average cadence on a bike as being 90 revolutions per minute, give or take, which is a pretty, pretty solid estimate, that's 5,400 pedal strokes per hour. And again, if we're looking at that weekend warrior going six, seven hours a week, all the way up to the elites and the pros going 20 hours a week, we're in the neighborhood of 30,000 to 100,000 pedal strokes per week. 
So even something small compounded over that kind of volume can, can certainly become an issue. So when I'm looking at that, it's being able to identify what the motor patterns are for that athlete, whether it's a road cyclist, whether it's a time trialist, whether it's, it's a mountain biker. Understanding, again, which we, we noted earlier, where the zones of support are, where the energy transfer happens, and then where the power output needs to come from, and then breaking things down from there. So it's all about regressing those movements and seeing where that pattern is. And I'm sure we'll get into DNS at some point. Um, that certainly helps give me the lens to look to, at that through. Then breaking it down and, and then rebuilding it is essentially what the strategy is, whether it gets acute or chronic. We still need to keep these athletes on their bikes. Endurance sports or aerobic fitness is certainly way more volatile than what strength is. I mean, we can take a few weeks out of strength training with minimal loss in strength, but if we take a couple of weeks off of aerobic, we're taking a big hit. Um, and it's going to take a while to get that back again. So if we're talking an injury that puts them out for three, four weeks, that, that, that's got a serious downstream effect on where they're looking to peak and how they're periodizing coming up into a race. We, we need to sort of look at that, get that fixed and get them on their bike as quickly as human possible. Keeping in mind too, when we're looking at any acute injury, understanding, you know, uh, histologically what's happening with the tissues and tissue healing and, you know, the, the different phases of tissue healing as well. So that's kind of the approach again, bike fit, then training and then motor patterns. Yeah. I've had a few just patients over the years that haven't had their bike fit or they've had a new bike fit. And it just, it's, it is quite interesting to look at the little nuances of, as you alluded to how many revolutions a cyclist does and just some of the minute fixes that can create either such a, an improved output of power or such a quick reduction in symptoms, whether it's an overuse injury or something by having a bike fit. And I'm certainly not suggesting that that's what's happening all of the time, but especially if you're, I would assume competing at a really high level, the majority of those athletes are going through a really thorough bike fit as well. In terms of cross training in the context of an injury or even not an injury and in terms of their programming, what do cyclists use as cross training and, or do, do they not? Because typically bikes are the go-to for cross training, right? Like if you're looking at people, as you alluded to, that are doing foot on the ground contact sports, like whether it be rugby or, or running often, the bike is sort of what's, what's used as cross training. Is it, is it swimming or it's just not really used a lot? Yeah, that's a great question. And that really depends entirely on the athlete and, and the coach, um, if they are using a coach. And you know, at the higher levels, they should be using the coach. <laughs> but again, when we, we sort of take into consideration the unique demands of the sport, okay, it, it's non-weight-bearing. So cross-training in the pool, which is another non-weight-bearing sport, probably not the best choice, Right. I know in off early off season, you know, with, with a competitive season kind of being spring through early fall, getting into mid late fall, that's typically when, you know, the well-coached cyclists they're, they're getting into running and they're getting off the bike entirely. Some cases for a few weeks, sometimes even for the whole month, they don't even look at their bike. 
that's when they'll get in, into some running because there's still going to be a cardiovascular benefit to that. Um, it's going to be decreased volume because you just can't put the same volume in running as what you do on a bike. So from a recovery standpoint, less volume is going to be good for them. And then that's when the, the weight training starts to come into play or it should come into play. So again, the, these are two really good ones for cyclists because they are impact, they are loading, and that's going to help sort of offset some of that, you know, it's going to help with the bone density. It's going to help with the lean muscle mass, you know, bone density, obviously being age dependent. And that's, that's a whole other tangent um, because we want to optimize that bones respond really, really well to compression and load. So in the, you know, in the years when they're scalatedly immature, we need to sort of bank as much bone density as possible, because as you know, once we're scalatedly mature, all we're really doing at that point is just slowing the decline. We can't actually build any more bone density at that point. And again, that's a whole other topic with, with you know, younger athletes and weight training, when to start, when to not. I think when they're ready and if they can do it safely, they should do it. But that, that's a whole other podcast in and of itself. But again, I think the, the resistance training is going to be huge, um, again, for that lean muscle mass, for that resiliency, and then the, the ability of the body to withstand the rigors of a race season. And then again, the, the running, because it is impact, they are loading, it's a little bit different, and they can maintain some fitness at a lower volume, which, which, is, which is a win. Yeah. So basically they're just using, they're just doing the reverse, right? A lot of people that are doing say running or more of the weight bearing stuff, uh, resistance training or are defaulting to swimming and, and cycling as cross training and cyclists are just doing the reverse are high end competitive cyclists in season doing resistance training or not really. Uh, very, very good question. And the, and the paradigm is kind of shifting here a little bit in terms of what's happening. I just had a really good conversation just yesterday with, um, with one of the cyclists that I work with and what we're doing right now, while they're on a big volume training block right now, because this, this is the time to start building up as much aerobic base as possible is we're incorporating a lot more strengthening into what their program is and discussing maintaining strengthening throughout the competitive season. You know, it used to be conventional wisdom that, okay, you lift weights in the off season, you build up as much strength as what you can. And then when it's race season, you're riding your bike because you want to be as specific to your sport as possible, especially when, you know, it, it's a relatively well-known fact within the, the cycling community that the more volume that we put in, the faster you're going to be. So when, when you've only got a, a limited amount of resources, it's best to put those resources where they're best utilized. However, what's starting and the trend is starting to happen much to, much to my, my pleasure in doing so is that a lot of the, the higher-end, more elite, world-class cyclists are incorporating their strength training within the, the regular season or within their season. So it's not even uncommon anymore for, for and some of the very, very best in the world. If they've got a World Cup race, a short track race on the Friday, and then their, their Olympic distance on the Sunday, that week they're doing very, very heavy weights in the gym. The idea is sort of just neurologically, just get everything firing in all cylinders, for lack of a better word, optimize that strength, which lends itself sort of nicely to when we're looking at the aerobic element of it and sort of energy systems, which we can sort of talk about as well, is, you know, early base season, it's all about the volume, low intensity, so that zone one, zone two, 
and in terms of our intensities, it kind of goes zones one through five or seven, depending on which scholar you're following. But essentially zone one, zone two work, we're, we're looking at just that low intensity, anywhere from 50 to 60 to 70% of your max heart rate. That's the sweet spot in terms of developing that mitochondrial capillary, that peripheral adaptation. So without going off on too much of a tangent, physiologically in terms of the ability to deliver oxygen, utilize and deliver oxygen to the tissues is contingent on how much your heart pumps out, how fast it pumps it out, and that's the ability to get the oxygen to the tissues. So that'd be more of a central adaptation. And then you got this peripheral adaptation is the muscle tissues ability to absorb that oxygen and utilize that oxygen. So that peripheral adaptation, that building up the mitochondria, which is where we, we take that oxygen and we turn it into energy and the capillaries, which allow that oxygen to get into the muscle to get to the, the mitochondria to use energy, the capillaries do that. And that low intensity, high volume, that's where we build up that stockpile of the mitochondria and the capillaries. Sorry to interrupt. I just wanted to... So there's a distinct difference, obviously, between VO2 max and oxygen efficiency, right? Just because you have a high VO2 max, it doesn't mean that peripherally you can then take that oxygen and use it efficiently in the tissue. And what you're suggesting is that early high volume training is building up enough capillaries and enough mitochondria to take all that oxygen and use it in an efficient and effective manner. Is that correct? Yeah. So the, yeah, the idea is your lungs, they have a finite volume. There's only so much air they can pull in. So then from there, we got to take that air with the oxygen and oxygen is, is the currency that we need within the body to create energy in an aerobic capacity. So we need, but it doesn't matter how much we can get in there. If we're not using it, we're just going to breathe it out again. So it's how much can we breathe in and then deliver to the tissues and actually have them use that's the piece that we need. And that's where that, you know, low intensity, high volume training is clutch early off season and the base season is to build that up. Then as we periodize and start getting more towards competitive season, that's where the volume comes down. That's where the intensity starts to come up a little bit. And then the ability to sort of do higher output work. And then once we're fine tuning, getting ready for a race, which sort of brings me back to the original analogy is, okay, we're, we're in the week leading up to the race or races on the weekend. We're not doing a ton of volume, but we're sharpening some skills and we're kind of going short bursts, really, really, really high intensity to get everything firing, to get everything working, to just to, to fine tune. And that what we're finding in the strength world now and how that complements the cycling kind of the same way. So we're not going to do like huge volumes of strength training, but we're going to go very, very high output. And the adaptation there is meant to be neural, like just firing up the nervous system. You've already created a good cardiovascular base, a good physiological base through increasing capillary beds and mitochondria. And now you're just trying to fire everything up in preparation for the race. Exactly. It's just taking what you have and then just getting as much of it working as possible. With respect to the zones that you alluded to, and you talked about intensity in that style of training from zone one through five, is it 
typical is the typical way to monitor that through heart rate or is it rate of perceived exertion yeah again a super good question when it comes to monitoring intensity with specific in cycling the gold standard is going to be power so when it comes to heart rate for example there's going to be a lot of variability and it's going to depend entirely on the state of recovery of that athlete so the more recovered you are, the more heart rate variability you have, you're going to be able to get that heart rate up, meaning, okay, you, you have the ability to do work. And that's a good thing. If the heart rate starts becoming depressed a little bit and we got less variability in that heart rate, it means that we're, we're still sort of more in a state of needing to recover. And the body is just not giving us everything that we need because those resources need to be kind of recovered, right? So if you're at the end of a big training block, so say you put in a big week, say Monday through Sunday, it, it, you know, if you've been going deep into the hurt locker all week, come Sunday, you're going to find you're not going to be able to get the heart rate up as what you did earlier in the week. So if we're going by heart rate in that case, in order to get to the level of power output that we need, we're going to be going too deep to the well, because that heart rate is not giving us the right information that we need relative to the work that we're doing. So, it, you know, heart rate is important. And if that's the only metric you have, then, then it's great. Um, but again, the, the power output or the ability to do the work, that, that's the gold standard when it comes to cycling. Personally, I think it's, it's good to use all three and then have a really good idea. And that's where the body of training comes into play. So if you're basing your workouts based on the power, because that's just telling you what you're doing in terms of the work you've done, have an idea of what that feels like from a perceived exertion, have an idea of what your heart rate roughly is. And that way, you know, if you have a day, if you have the, the, the batteries on your power meter run dry, or you have a mechanical issue, then you're not grasping at straws because now the one metric you've been following, you don't have anymore. So obviously you sort of want to be able to be familiar with all three power being the gold standard. But again, if you put enough tra training in and if you're sort of paying attention, you should be able to go by feel come race day. And power is measured in wattage, correct? Yep. So using some element of all three, heart rate, wattage, and then rate of perceived exertion, as well as recovery, is what's used at the really, really, really elite level, I guess. Uh, you've already kind of alluded to some of the energy system stuff and some of the programming stuff. In terms of rest and recovery during these programming phases, what are some of the pitfalls that you see, whether it is in elite cyclists or amateur cyclists, in terms of rest and recovery that you'd like to see more of in their programming, whether that's a programming block or an entire year's worth of training? Yeah, a great question. At the more elite and pro level, these athletes, they've, they've logged so many lifetime miles. They've been doing it for so long. And, and the coaches are, are phenomenal. So with them, the, the training isn't even really a consideration because it's being done well. And they're in tune with their body enough to sort of realize if they're, you know, that difference between overreaching and overtraining. You know, as you know, overreaching, you're going a little bit above and beyond what you should be doing. But as long as you're not doing it too much too often, then there's an advantage to that. But if we're going to the well too often, then we're overtrained and that's a whole other issue entirely. So again, at the elite and pro level and the coaching is so sound 
that that's not even an issue for them. It's more when it comes to the amateur, the weekend warrior, that becomes an issue. I see it with cyclists. I see it with runners as well, is this almost dogmatic adherence to what their training plan is. So they've got, okay, whether they're going to run around the bay or whether they're going to do Paris Ancaster, the race out your way on, on the gravel bikes. It's the same thing. They, they get this training plan, they follow it from week to week. And, you know, th- this is the golden path to meeting their objective. And they sort of have this preconceived notion that any deviation from the script means they're not going to meet their objective. And I see a lot of these athletes, and I'm sure you see the same thing three weeks from the race, they're completely blown up because they, they've been following so much of the training plan. And they're so stressed out about it that they're not taking a step back and sort of looking at things. Uh, they're, they're losing the forest for the trees in this sense. So everybody's different. Stress is stress, whether it's training stress, whether it's life stress, emotional stress, relationship stress, work. All the body understands is it's stress. And it has a finite ability and finite resources to handle that stress and recover from that stress. So the training plan might be completely sound, but when you factor in life circumstances, that's going to push the needle one way or the other. Having the ability to sort of understand that is critical because sometimes that means, I mean, in a a really sound training program, typically what you're going to see is a three or four week build and then a one week pullback. And that gives your body enough time to recover from what you just did. And then you do another three, four week builds, and then you pull back and recover as a general guideline. Sometimes that recovery week, it needs to happen sooner than three, four weeks. And sometimes it has to last a week or two weeks. I mean, it's not like the coach that put that plan together can account for every factor that's going to happen in your life between starting the program and race day. It could be a very, very good quality program. But life happens. And that's where, you know, I see a lot of under recovery because they're following it so closely that they're not listening to the signs from their body. Okay, this is rubbing or this is getting tight or this is kind of tender. It's okay to take a couple of training days off. I mean, if, if you have a 12 week build and you miss four workouts, it's going to have nil impact on your ability to perform come race day. But if you push through and you shouldn't, now you're running the risk that you might be injured come rest day. So that's that's one of the huge, huge, huge ones that I see when it comes to rest and recovery and one of the most common things I see where that falls apart. Yeah, that's a really, really important point for anyone listening. And it's almost like and your your point about the body ha- just understanding physical and cognitive stress is the same and having finite resources I really relate to because what I've seen in in athletes is like, are you going into the race? What's your mindset going into the race? Like, are you going in loose or are you going in like tight? And to your point, are you questioning everything? Cause you missed four training programs over the last, or you've missed four training sessions over the last four months. And your mindset is like, well, I've missed four training programs. Therefore I'm going to perform poorly. The majority of amateur athletes in the like half Ironman marathon endurance bike race, community that I've treated that have a poor training program, but their mindset is kind of like my training program wasn't great. So my expectations for the race are poor end up PBing almost always again, alluding to what you suggested that if you miss one training workout, it's not the end of the world and understanding that there is a huge mindset component and how you're going into the race from just a sports psychology perspective 
that's going to maybe allow you to jump over some of these hurdles, these physical quote unquote hurdles that you may feel as though you had because your training program wasn't efficient as you, as you first set it out to be. For sure. And then that expectation too, on, on the flip side where, you know, having a, an expected outcome, then that ca- that can cause a lot of stress as well, which can significantly, imp- you know, in the days leading up impact sleep quality and inefficient utilization of resources and, and cortisol can have deleterious effects on race day as well as, okay, we're coming in. I did this program. Everything's been to a T. I've got this high expectation. Now it's okay. Come race day. It's like, Oh crap. Now I have to perform. Shifting a little bit into kind of the rehab space. We've been talking a lot about training, a lot about programming. You're seeing a lot of these demographic or this demographic rather at both the elite level and the amateur level. And I know you're using a lot of kind of DNS or DNS style stuff in your, in your practice. Maybe just give the listeners kind of maybe a bit of a background about DNS or maybe your philosophy on how you use rehab um, in the context of cycling injuries in general and some of the methods that you might use in your clinic. Yeah. So DNS dynamic neuromuscular stabilization, it's based out of Prague, Prague school of rehabilitation. And I, I think a good chunk of your, your audience is a lot of massage therapists so that they'd be familiar with Vladimir Yonda and, you know, his upper lower cross syndromes, which was out of Prague as well. So what DNS is, is one of the students of that school, uh, Pavel Kolosh, took all the work that was being done from Vladimir Yonda, Voida, um, all the, these big grandfathers in rehabilitation and just exploded it. A lot of people sort of look at it very shallowly as, okay, this is just how babies move. Because essentially what it is, is developmental kinesiology. But in essence, what it really is, is looking at gross motor patterns. So if we take a newborn baby, you know, aside from being cute, they're essentially from a motor standpoint, they're useless. They they just sort of just lay there and cry and poop and, and want to feed, you know, over the course of the next 12 to 14 months, they start to be able to lift their head. They start to be able to suck their thumbs, suck their toe, reach for objects, grasp for objects, turn their head, crawl, walk, and all these developmental milestones across genders, ethnicities, geographic location, et cetera, all more or less happen in around the same time. So they're not coached. These aren't learned behavior. These are ingrained in the CNS. These developmental patterns are, are critical to being able to become upright and ambulate. With that, you know, there's certain zones of support, which we sort of alluded to earlier. So crawling, for example, our zones of support are going to be our hands, our knees, and our feet. That crawling around, that afferent input that we're receiving will drive the motor output. So essentially, if we, if we get the right afferent information into the CNS, then we get, you know, the afferent response coming uh, from a motor output standpoint. So when it comes to, say, shoulder stability, for example, it's that crawling motion that will trigger, you know, you know activation of serratus, of rhomboids, etc., what this does as we sort of develop is we just sort of develop strength. We de- develop stronger synapses in terms of our ability to sort of have this higher level motor output. So where I use that essentially is when I'm looking at 
and not just with cyclists, but with all athletes are what are the demands of their sport? What's the desired outcome? And what that allows me to do is regress what they're doing to a level that they can competently execute and then rebuild them back up again. And what DNS is great at is giving us the ability to do that. For example, from a cycling standpoint, if we're turning on a bike, those motor patterns are the same as a baby rolling over or turning over. Same as throwing a baseball, swinging a golf club, it's similar motor patterns. So if we can identify, okay, this hurts in this position, or I can turn efficiently to the left, but I can't turn as effectively to the right. If this hurts when I'm descending, if that hurts when I'm climbing, okay, I can break that down. I can use this pattern and then I can adapt it to a higher level exercise that suits their needs. So again, if, if it's a turning issue, okay, it hurts my neck when I turn to the right, but not to the left. Okay, I know it's a turning pattern. So now what tools in my arsenal do I have from a developmental perspective that I can help modify that pattern in a manner that's going to help them in their sport? So ultimately, what it, what it is, it's, it's the ultimate re- regression. So as long as I have an athlete that's capable of laying on the ground, I can find a level to, to start with them and then build them back up again. That can be a variety of symptoms, right? That can be they just can't do it. They're in pain. They don't feel confident in doing it. They're having an issue with skill acquisition. You can use these concepts through whatever lens you're looking at. You're using it as a, the ultimate regression to achieve some type of goal that you feel is important for the person in front of you and or they feel it's important for them. Exactly. It's not necessarily that I'll do DNS proper with every single athlete and it's like, okay, well, you're going to go in a seven month developmental pattern, or you're going to go in 11 month developmental pattern. What it essentially is, is taking the principles and then putting that in a context that's useful for the athlete. And and that's key too, because as we know with pain, if we can improve upon the aberrant pattern, that's going to translate into a sport, but if we can do it in a different context, that's going to change the perception of what's happening. So, okay, if it hurts when I do this, okay, well, let's improve upon that with the same pattern, but it's not that. Right. So putting them in a safe position, non-threatening position, whatever that, whatever language you want to use around that, if they're getting knee pain with cycling and you're able to put them and regress them into a position and then build them back up from their graded exposure, whatever term you want to use, that's how you're using it in conjunction with the other things that you're doing clinically and or within the programming that they're doing. Yeah, exactly. And and like with any strategy, it shouldn't become the training. So the idea with that is, okay, if you're going to go in for a weight training session, or if you're going to jump on the trainer or go for a road ride, let's grease this for a little bit, build a little bit of confidence in the movement, and then get the heck out and do what's actually going to make you better at your sport. So again, whether that's in the weight room or whether that's on the bike, it's okay, let's get it. Let's get things working a little bit more ideally, build a little bit of confidence in that pattern, and then get to what's going to make you better. Are you able to, because I know that you are kind of teaching a little bit now and you've started to take some of the principles that you use clinically and now teach other therapists about what you're doing from a a rehab standpoint and not necessarily talking about cyclists specifically, but just teaching students that might have um, more of an interest in exercise and incorporating exercise into their clinical practice. Can you talk a little bit about the courses that you've started to put together and 
how that's going. I know that you've taken a year or two off with COVID, but I think you're getting back into it now. Yeah. So the idea with the, with the course is, is essentially it's looking at assessment and rehabilitative or corrective strategies. It's teaching other healthcare providers, clinicians, allied healthcare providers to assess the body in terms of function and in terms of patterns and getting away from orthopedic testing and identifying this is firing or that's not firing or this is weak and that's not weak. I think the body moves in patterns. It doesn't preferentially activate glute med. It doesn't preferentially activate pec minor. It doesn't preferentially activate the rhomboids. Everything kind of works in synergy. And so the idea with the course, the level one course is essentially from a physiological perspective, looking at the various organ systems and their influence on gross motor motor output and how the body moves in the interplay between, between the different organ systems, and then looking at the movement and sort of assessing it and, you know, where they could be moving better and improving upon those patterns. And it's really taking everything I've learned over the last several years, throwing it all into a blender, trying to simplify it as much as possible, and then have something that's sort of easy to digest. The initial program and then higher level courses get into a little bit more with the actual interventions and from a manual therapy perspective. But the the idea behind that, again, is to sort of simplify things, look at movement, look at patterns, and and get away from this reductionist model of, of, um, of therapy and assessment. So does a pattern hurt? Can't really do it as well as you think you can? You're trying to execute a particular skill in a sport or skill in a job or what have you. And how can we maybe give someone something to do to help improve upon that? Yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, it's, it's getting away from, okay, well, your back hurts because your glutes don't fire. Let's teach you how to squat. Let's teach you how to hip hinge. Those are the patterns. How do they apply to your ADLs or your sport or whatever it is? If you can hinge, if you can squat, if you can stand on one leg, your glutes fire. So um, it's kind of getting away from that and treating it okay. Like let's just get moving. If it's an acute injury, you know, again, if, if we're respecting the the stages of tissue healing, soft tissue likes tension. So if the if the soft tissues are going to heal in an ideal manner, they need tension. So let's tension them in a pattern that you're actually going to use. If it's chronic pain we know that the best intervention for chronic pain is movement and exercise. So no amount of manual therapy is going to help with chronic pain in in any long lasting capacity. So again, we're back to movement. It really is movement-based therapy and being able to identify what's missing, what do they need and how do they integrate it with what their ADLs or the sport are. If people are looking to, to take a course, speak a little bit about where they can find you on social media or your website, or even if they're in the, the Barrie area and they're a cyclist and they're looking to get some help with that. So with, with, uh, with the courses, social media, I'm a little bit more active there with uh, Rock Athletic Development. So that'd be on Instagram, Facebook. Those are both there. Website's under construction. It's getting close. And that would be markrocket.com. And then there you can find info, whether it pertains to courses that I'm doing, some of the more performance-oriented stuff that I'm doing with athletes. And then with anything clinically related from a rehab, from an injury standpoint, 
then I'm working at Strive Sport and Exercise Medicine in Barrie, Ontario. I appreciate you coming on, buddy. And as always, folks, I hope that you found this episode to be of value to you. Have yourselves a great weekend, and we'll catch up in the next one.